Alan Kring Productions, in association with the Emergent Light Studio, presents the Illinois State Collegiate Compendium, Academic Lectures in Business and Economics. This is Business Finance, FIL 240 for Spring Semester 2023. Today, financial statements, and this is the chapter where I, I start by teaching you accounting. And every semester I go into this week knowing that I have to teach accounting, and I decide whether I'm going to do so or just kill myself first. But I've so far made it through this, and I do caution that some of what I say is not in the book. And I, I also make a correction to what's in the book, a uh, rather important one, but a small correction, but it's important. But before we do that, we want to have a look at the numbers, and as we do every day. And uh, the first obvious question in this regard would simply be this. Madam, is this a bull day or a bear day? And be emphatic. It's a bear day. You got to say bull and bear. It's a bear day. And uh, this bear day is pretty notable. And notice that pattern that the largest stocks of 30 ginormous, here for all eternity, uh, lumbering stocks, they went down the least, uh, down about three quarters of a percent. And then the S&P 500, Large, large corporations, but riskier overall, they're down more, more uh, one and a quarter percent. And then the small, high-risk companies uh, of the NASDAQ, they are taking a toilet break. They're heading for 2% down today. It's just a down day. It's a dark day. So now, the, in other words, investors are pulling out of equities. They are getting out of stocks. They're selling their stocks. And that opens the funds up. Now, one thing to note here, crude is taking a dive. It's broken through the neckline that most of us had thought was going to hold at 78, 79 to 78. It's gone down below that. And the big reason is that the world oil supply, we're all washing oil. It's in the reserve tanks pulled out of the ground by the pump jacks. It's in the pipelines, it's on the ships, the very large dirty tankers, the, me the intermediates and the, the refineries are flush with oil. <clears throat> and uh, it, it, within a week, you'll see the price of gasoline slipping because a lot of this oil, as I told you the last time, was being filling up the uh, supply of distillates, the diesel, uh, jet fuel, kerosene, all that. And that, that will eventually turn back to gasoline, and that should ease back off that price, and we'll see it get back down to the lower $3 into the $279, $299 range like that coming next week. So oil is on the downside, selling oil contracts. Gold is up, but it's up just a tiny bit. Remember I said about if it's below 0.25% either way, that's like pretty much a flat day. So gold just sitting there looking stupid. Silver about the same, just sitting there looking stupid. Now here's the interesting thing. That's bond yields. Bond yields are up. 
That means bond prices are down. They are always exact inverse. So in other words, investors are getting out of equities. Those funds might flow to bonds. But here, investors in bonds are getting out too. Prices of bonds are falling. The money isn't sure isn't going in, into the metals in droves. So that leaves us, well, where the hell is the money going? Those funds. The investors are getting out of the stocks. They're getting out of bonds. They're not diving into the metals. That is probably, well, what's happening is that the investors are putting it into cash. They're, in other words, they're putting it on the sidelines for a wait and see what is going to happen next. And that's not surprising because the signals are all kinds of mixed right now. The Fed is backing off its aggressive increases in interest rates. And uh, that's, that's boosts the economy. Inflation is beginning to show real signs of backing down. Good sign. Jobs market looks good. Good sign. So why are the investors so bitchy right now? Well, it's because they're still not sure the rest of the world's sliding into a recession. And here we are sitting here looking good, but we do need the rest of the world to buy some of our stuff and all that kind of stuff. So it seems like it's like what the investors are pulling off, putting their money on the sidelines and saying, okay, what happens next? Let's get some clear direction uh, for now. And it'll stay on the sidelines until we get better signals. It's sort of like if you're in a really dense fog, you don't just keep going, you stop and you wait for a clearing or you see a light somewhere. And that's about what's going on now right here in the United States. You go over here and as you can see, Japan was up and down through the day last night. That's their day was last night here. And you can see it just bounced up and then it went down and then it came back and there was a little rally at the end, but it was still for the day up only 0.19%. So nothing spectacular there. We go over to London, sunset in Japan, and then it was rising across Europe and got to London. And the London started out in a bitchy mood. But as you can see, they kind of groveled back up and it didn't finish. They just closed though. Looks like they, I think they just closed uh, about 20 minutes ago or something like that. I don't know, uh, maybe a little sooner than that. but. Uh, they know nothing spectacular there either. But man, when we got over here to this side of the Atlantic, boy, was it, it was just a down day, uh, a hard bear day. Now, I plan to have, an, um, have a speaker come in on Wednesday, he, a bullish investor, who will try to get you excited about the bull market and his judgment on it, what he thinks about uh, how, how much he thinks it's going to be a bull market. Taking that off to the side now, looking at a couple of stocks just to have a look here. Um, what was I going to pull up here? Oh, let me do just Walmart. WMT. It Whither goes the market? Walmart, the economy, Walmart goes with it. Now, as you can see, last yesterday afternoon, the closing bell, 
it was 143.30. By the time the market opened this morning, there were obviously, there was pressure in the aftermarket and the pre-market, more sells than buys, so it opened up down from there. So it started out in the toilet and it went into the sewer system from there. But as you can see, Notice that the volume is very weak. You see that? Uh, compared to the average day uh, over the last year, the volume was only, it's only about half of that today. And that is reflected in that bid-ask spread there. You see how it, 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 it's kind of open. It's a couple of cents, or rather a couple of cents. It's actually more than that. These are delayed numbers. But if you were to buy uh, Walmart, you would pay $141.50, according to this screen. If you were to sell it, you would sell it at $141.48. Now, on your first exam, I give you a screen that looks just like this, right from before the exam. And I just ask you for some information. Okay, what, which one, what would happen if you went long a round lot of Walmart? Now, the term long means you're a buyer, okay? I'm long Walmart. That means I'm buying it, okay? So if you went long one round lot, that's 100 shares. A round lot is 100 shares. So if I went long one round lot, I would pay $14,150. That's all I would be asking. Well, there would be sort of a series of questions. Do you know how to look at one of these screens? And so that, suppose that you sold a round lot of Walmart. Well, then you would receive, not counting commissions, $14,148. So I'll just ask it. It's, a, it's almost like a no-brainer question, but you just have to know where to look to get the answers. Now, as you can see, Walmart has actually bounced not much during the trading day today. It, it's been as low as 141.27, as high as 142.39 today. So, I mean, that's not a big trading range. It's just been down, that's all. Now, over the past 52 weeks, uh, Walmart has gone as low as 117.27 and as high as 160.77. So it, it's been over a range, and it looks like it's a little closer to its high than its low, right here. Let's do, there you go, there's one year. So the 160 would have probably been that peak right there, and the 117 would have been that trough right there. God, see this right here? That's a volume spike, and that's a drop. Does anyone know why that happened? It was an earnings report. Walmart reported bad earnings, and instantly, kaboom, the stock just dropped. And once that information was digested, the markets went on from there with that information already in the stock price. Uh, now, full disclosure, I am a, uh, as far as Walmart buying at Walmart, I am a Walmart hoe. I go there all the time to buy, okay? So I'm not going to trash the company where I, where I eat. But let's, let's talk here. Market cap, a monster, nearly $400 billion. The beta on this thing, beta, 
Madam, is this a safe or a risky stock? Yes, very safe. It has only about half of the volatility of the world itself in a well-diversified portfolio. It's just, it's a huge company. It can't do much. Now, interestingly, though, look at that P-E ratio. That is above 30. That tells me that the price in the price to earnings is overvalued. This is an overvalued stock. That tells me that this is definitely not a, an investment prospect because I see a super safe stock, 0.53 beta, that's your grandma's beta. But my God, <coughs> that P-E ratio is up there. And so that would tell me that the price in price divided by earnings is high. And so it's overvalued compared to intrinsic and that's kind of how we use these two numbers together. They, we, we look for, like I said, one of my uh, ways of looking at companies for investments is on the beta compared to the P-E ratio. Yeah, go. Um, with the beta, what was the number that you above it? 1.00. 1.00 okay. is the beta of the world portfolio. We designed beta that way so that anything below that would be safer than the world itself, and anything above that would be riskier than the world itself. And, I mean, you know, it's just one of those technical measures that we all, well, not all of us, but it's my favorite. I don't, uh, personally, you've got these traders who use all these insanely complicated technical algorithms and formulas, and I, I'm not really big on that. If it's that complicated, I, I mean, I wish they'd just leave that to, to the physicists. But notice Walmart's profitable. You see that? Earnings per share is $3.25. In other words, if you take the total net income divided by the number of shares outstanding, each share, Walmart earned $3.25 for each share of its hundreds of millions of sh stock shares. Also, interestingly, the company pays a dividend. It's an old company. Remember I said, you know, after a while, companies start paying dividends. This one pays more than half of what it earns. It just gives back to the shareholders. The rest it plows back into the company on behalf of the shareholders. So this company is, uh, I mean, yeah, it the price could go down, but at least you're going to get this off uh, that dividend. $2.24 divided by the 141.57, that's where they get that 1.56%. In other words, if you spent $141.59 on this stock, you would probably, dividends aren't guaranteed, but you'd probably get a 1.56% return. Now I'm going to show you something here. You don't need to know this yet, and this is the way I teach. I just show you something a couple of times before I get down and dirty and expect you to be able to do it. But one thing that when you invest in a stock, there are two ways that you can make money. Through the stock going up in price, that's called capital gain. But you also get money if there's a dividend. That's the dividend yield. So I'm going to show you. Uh, now, don't take this prediction by Yahoo seriously. 
However, let's say that in one year, one year from today, Yahoo is right and the stock will be at 161.56. Now I'm going to pull up a, a simple calculator here and I'm going to say, okay, you take the ending value. This is going to be a one year holding period capital gain. $161.56 divided by what you paid for it today, 141.48. And then you subtract one, which you always have to do. So they're saying that on the capital gain alone, a one year holding period, you would earn a capital gain yield uh, percentage of 14.19%. That's pretty damn decent. That's one of the reasons I'm a little suspicious of this. On a, high be- uh, on a low beta stock. Eh. But also, if the company pays a dividend, you have to include that. And here they're saying that the dividend yield would be 1.56%. So your overall, your total holding period, one-year return, according to Yahoo Finance, would be 15 and three quarters percent. That's a darn good, if that were to happen. But that's how we calculate holding period returns. We take the end divided by the beginning minus one. And then don't forget, you also have to add your dividend. But some companies don't have a dividend, so you don't do that part. Okay, now I'm gonna do this again, and then I'm gonna do it one more time to hold you responsible. But I just want you to see Sometimes it's a lot better if you don't have to know something. You might pick it up better that way. Sort of like learning how to speak a language. Instead of focusing on grammar and definitions, you just start using it. Okay, now I'm gonna, let me show you one more here. Let me show you something on the opposite side. Ford. Yeah, it's taken a real butt bath today, uh, down 2.60%. It was closed yesterday at 13.27, opened this morning at 13.01. Yeah, Ford actually is a pretty cheap stock. Here's another interesting thing though. Notice that Ford, the bid ask is, that's a three cent bid ask. Um, The volume is strong on Ford today. We're not at the end of the day yet, and it's already had more shares trade than on the typical day over the last year. 53.3 million so far today versus 51.8 million on the typical day. So it's actively traded today. But, okay, and Ford, about a $52 billion company, beta on this one. The beta on this one. What say you, sir? Is this a risky or a not risky? risky. Yeah, this is almost on the uh, on that category called AF. It's risky AF, <laughs> 1.5. In other words, it's 50% more volatile than the world portfolio on average if you hold it in a well-diversified portfolio. But look at that P-E ratio. Uh, that... that Do you see how that's a really low P.E. ratio? In other words, the price in price to earnings is well below what 
we would expect it to be at about, uh, if PE of 30 is about normal, then a 5.77 would mean that the price is way low. In other words, right here, I'm looking at what might be considered an undervalued stock. That's what I would see this as. Now, the problem is that this is a risky stock, so you'd have to be a risk-taking investor to do this. But with that P.E. ratio so damn low, that's telling me that there is a lot of upside potential on the price. This is part of fundamental analysis. You don't get complicated. You look at relatively simple ratios. And I'll teach you the ratio analysis uh, over the next couple of weeks. But when you've got to think behind the ratios. What is this number telling me? It, the, calculating numbers, we let the accountants do that. We think about what does this mean to us as in actual uh, investment terms with real money on the line. So that's what I'm uh, encouraging you to think about here. Notice that Ford is a profitable company. It's making money. It's making $2.24 a share. It pays a, a decent dividend, 60 cents a share. So this is a stock that might be interesting because even if you get your ass kicked on the price, you're going to get a dividend check. As a matter of fact, Ford, now remember, dividends are not guaranteed. A company does not like to not pay its dividend. If it's been paying dividends, it's a, it really doesn't like not to. To give you an example of Ford, a couple of years ago, Ford was losing money. Its EPS was negative. It was still paying its dividend. I mean, wait, you didn't, where did you get that money from to pay the dividend? They drew it out of their retained earnings. They did not want to stop paying their dividend. So, I mean, like I said, dividends are not guaranteed, but a company, that's, a company would be stupid to not pay its dividend. So e even if this stock price goes down, at least you're going to get that little dividend there, which is a hell of, I mean, for uh, 60 cents on 12.93 investment, that's a 4.5% yield. You can't get that in a bank account. So Ford has got some things that really make it interesting to give it a try. On the other hand, you know, you've got that risk there that should scare off because uh, that's, a, that's a casino that I wouldn't want to go into. Uh, well, yes, I would, but that's just because I'm stupid. Let me show you something here. Let me do that capital, that gain thing again for you, just so you see it another time. Okay, if we bought the stock today and sold it in a year, and Yahoo is right, we would, in one year, get $14.02 divided by an investment exactly one year earlier of $12.93. Minus the one, you don't want, ever want to forget the minus one. And so times that by 100. Yahoo is saying that your capital gain would be 8.43%. In other words, your gain on the stock price. That would be a one-year holding period capital gain return. But... Ford also pay, you're also going to earn that 4.52% dividend. So your total one-year holding period return on Ford would be 12.95%. 
That's not bad. I mean, Walmart, that gain that they said was going to be on Walmart, that seems awfully high for a low beta stock. This is actually pretty low for a high beta stock. And I'll teach you how to do that. What's a, high, what's a good return, what's a bad return? It all depends upon the risk of the stock. Okay, But in this case, uh, in the case of Walmart, my own judgment from many, many years is that Yahoo is overly optimistic. Because Walmart is a giant old company, how much more can it grow? than where it is now. Uh, it's got, oh, there's a Walmart, a couple of Walmarts in every city, and it, there is some potential for international growth, but I just don't see Walmart having the guts to do it aggressively. So I'm thinking that Yahoo is predicting too high on that price, especially with that high P.E. ratio. Ford, on the other hand, I kind of think that they're lowballing what it'll be in a year just because Ford is trying all kinds of new things. Uh, you know it actually canceled all of its car models except the Mustang to focus only on trucks. And it also, it's, its commitment to electric, electric vehicles is worrisome to me. Yeah, we're in, no, we're out, yeah, we're back in. But if they can get their major act together, I see this as possibly an $18 to $20 stock in a year. Possibly. I think, okay, though. Okay. But anyway, there's that for you. Looking at it, and notice how I'm sneaking you into a little bit more technical analysis and fundamental analysis as we go on. Now I'm going to take you on a little journey here. And there will be a more complete story of this a little later in the semester. But for now, uh, to give you the backdrop of financial statements, I don't go through accounting. I, I even taught accounting at one time. Worst damn two days of my life. No, uh, but uh, I got through it. And, I don't teach you accounting. Well, we debit on this side, we credit on this side, and you swing the dead cat three times over the pot and you're firstborn. I don't give a crap about generally accepted accounting principles consistently applied. What I do care about is that you know the structure of financial statements because I need to show you how to twist those so that they actually tell us something we need to know. But in order to do all this, a little story behind the story, I, as I'm sure you've heard me say, I, I, I'm an international teacher in Central America and West Africa are my chosen places. And uh, in, in West Africa, to give you an example, they, they need capital, they need to grow, and they need to get money and capital, both, from sources that aren't going to rip them off. Uh, one country in West Africa I work closely with ended up, um, they desperately, they wanted $750 million. Okay, well, they didn't know how capital markets work, so they went to the obvious source, the World Bank. And the World Bank got them a loan at an interest rate of 17.5%. 
I mean, that's, that's rip-off, that's insane. Especially because this country is rated pretty high by Standard & Poor's Global. Uh, global. Okay, so the bottom line, though, is that they say, how do we keep this from happening? Can you find us other sources? And obviously, the money is there, the capital is there. There are trillions of dollars swirling and looking for homes, good investments. But here's the problem. Most countries don't have the desirable features of a developed country, especially the United States. We have always been this magnet for capital. C countries will sell us cheap stuff just so they can get our dollars to invest back here. That's how current and capital accounts work, international flows. Uh, okay, why is that the case? Well, there are several factors. One of them is the rule of law. We have a judicial system where the law is everything. It's not the people, it's the law. And there are examples of when that breaks down. But in general, if there's a contract, it's good. If there's a dispute, it will be resolved by an arbiter who is objective in a court of law. That whole thing makes us a very safe investment haven. But there's another part too, transparency. Letting the world see everything that we have. In our companies, we are, they are required, and I'll explain that in just a minute, to show every financial detail in triplicate, quite literally it used to be, um, in consistently applied accounting standards. This creates an absolute, not an absolute, but a near certainty that what we are, what they see is what is happening and there is nothing being hidden from them. That's transparency. Now in, in some of these countries that I'm dealing with, they, I say, okay, we need this, 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 and this, and this, and this, and uh, oh, by the way, I need the biographies and the credentials of the officers and directors and all this kind. Oh, we don't do that. Well, you can't ask for that. Watch me. Yes, I am asking for that. And you see, getting them over that barrier, well, this is not something we would disclose. We worked hard to get this company together. We're not gonna show them all of our finance. Yes, you are if you want that money. Getting them to the point where they have this transparency is going to be a huge thing. And it's going to I thought it would be easy, and it's not. You're getting into cultural issues, political issues, the whole nine yards. Okay, now, putting that off to the side, transparency, rule of law, take you back to the starting, uh, uh, the boundary is about 1932. The U.S. has always, the United States has always been a country that had a sort of feature of fierce independence. Uh, and no one's going to tell us what to do. We want to have our own country. We want to have our own decisions. It's, it's one of our things. It's a, not a bug. It's a feature of us. And it blows its head wide open all the time, even in our era now. But before the 1930s, there was a, just a, 
just an acceptance of the idea that the only good government is no government. Uh, the, a, a government should be small enough that you can drown it in a bathtub. Regulation of business, my God, how, how dare you? Free markets are the best markets. You let markets run themselves, and then the wealthy will be wealthy, and then they'll hire the poor, and then everyone will, all boats will rise. Uh, that was the way we were. There was almost no question of this. Well, there was, but it was on the fringes. The 1920s was the era of three consecutive free market, right-wing conservative presidents and their congresses. And so, of course, there was no regulation of business. And in the financial sector, it was the time of lies, scams, con men, just every kind of nasty you could think of. And people lost their life savings to, uh, to con artists. It was just awful. The rich were getting richer and the poor were getting poorer. We have the data. There's something called the Gini coefficient, which measures the disparity of income between rich and poor. It was going up. The only time in history when it, has, it was worse is right now. That should scare the shit out of people, but they don't. Uh, well, them numbers are for them academic airheads. But anyway, back in the 20s, it was the roaring 20s. But it wasn't that for the typical person. And it got worse and worse as the 20s went on. And then in, 19, in 1929, uh, the uh, markets, stock markets buckled. Just boom, black swan from hell. Everything went, every, finally, it, so much had built up, so much weakness in the system from the corruption and the tomfoolery and chicanery that the whole thing went to hell. Well, the next presidential election was in 1932. And at that time, we were already in the Great Depression. It, uh, it was sweeping along just unemployment above 25%, uh, people starving. I mean, it was just awful. And um, the uh, people, the country's voting population just finally got a clue from Clueville, and they kicked all of the damn rascals out. They kicked out everyone in Congress and in uh, the Senate House, and they kicked out the ruling party in the presidential election. And then came the era of reform. And I'm not talking about reform like you've ever heard. This was hellacious. The president was Franklin Delano Roosevelt. He even said in a broadcast, the rich despised me, and I welcome their hatred. And oh, they just rocked. The reform came to securities, banking, labor, and all kinds of other areas that you just, and we just assume in our era, oh, that's the way it is. It wasn't that way until these reformers came rolling in, and they rocked the country with the reforms that they did. Now, you have to understand the context. In 1920s and into the 19th, 1930s, 
You had two opposing forces that would have destroyed us. We had already seen the communists, the Marxists, take an entire giant country called Russia and turn it into a Marxist utopia. Then on the other side, in the early 1930s, you had the damn Nazis holding rallies with hundreds of thousands of people, cheering them here in this country. The filthy Nazis on one side, the filthy communists on the other. So we had to find a way in between those to keep the principle of the republic. Freedom, but with the controls that would be necessary so that the scoundrels didn't wreck us on either side. And so that's when we come to where I get you to what we're doing, what we've done since then. Now, there was reform in all kinds of sectors of the, of the country. Um, in a labor law, the National Labor Relations Act was passed. In banking law, Glass-Steagall was passed. Interestingly enough, Glass-Steagall was repealed in 1999. So here we are in a world back to the 1920s, in a way. But in securities law, which was a major problem because of all the lying and scams and, and chicanery, they had to crack down very quickly in a two, uh, two laws. The first one was the Securities Act. Yeah, dead, dead one. Uh, dead marker. The first one was the Securities Act of 1933. Really? Is it that hard to have a pen uh, marker that works? Ah, here we go. First one was the Securities Act of 1930. <laughs> really? <laughs> so very, very sick and tired. Ha! <laughs> I think some of those traders for the 20s are trying to haunt me. Securities Act. Of 1933. A couple of things about it. One was this created the Securities Exchange Commission, the SEC. You see, we think this is kind of a normal thing, these agencies and commissions like the EPA and the SEC and the National Labor Relations Board and all that. That was actually something that was unusual uh, until the 20th century. You see, Congress passes laws, but how do you enforce them? Do you call the sheriff? If uh, a, a, someone violates an environmental law or securities law, you see the, the innovation of creating an agency or commission was pretty cool because then you had a layer of experts. They represented the government, they interpreted the laws, and then they enforced them on the target constituency. That, it, 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 that's how, interestingly enough, um, the first antitrust law was in 1890. The problem was that there wasn't any agency to oversee antitrust. What companies are monopolizing? Uh, 
So they very quickly figured out that companies that were monopolies could beat the system because there, there, there wasn't an agency of experts that could prosecute. Well, this was in that same regard. The Securities Act of 1933 created the SEC that would enforce law. Now, this act dealt with primary markets. In other words, the IPOs and the seasoned offerings. The primary market. It, it was addressing that part. And then they came right back around the next year, and they did the Securities Exchange Act of 1934. This dealt with the secondary markets, you know, buying and selling securities from uh, each other. This got the broker-dealers under control. They cracked down hard. They really cracked down hard. And now, over time, the commission has, in some eras, been very strong, putting an iron fist down. In other eras, it's been more or less moderate to weak. In my time, when I was in this world, it was on the, on the tough side. They, uh, I remember as a consultant, I, would, I helped companies stay in compliance with the laws. That was one of my big things as a consultant, and filling out the forms and all that. And I'll get to the forms here in a second. But I would do that. That was my work, and I was paid to do it because it was tedious work. And I re remember a number of occasions where I would call someone at the SEC, and I'd say, I don't understand this. Can you help me? And of course, they always get started out with, we are not allowed to give advice to uh, uh, companies who are reporting. And then within about one second, I'd get, but if I were you, and so they, they, would, they were actually somewhat helpful and supportive of keeping you in, keeping companies in compliance. Uh, it got bad in the 1990s. And there was a lot of cray, cray, crazy stuff going on. And then there was a crackdown in 2002. Uh, the, the enforcement had become so weak that companies could just lie to the SEC and therefore to the public. And no one caught them. No one punished them. And it got, went, built to a head have any of you ever heard of the company Enron? That was it. I mean, Enron. That was in my time. Enron was an oil and gas, an energy company. And I was doing oil and gas consulting and work down in Texas where Enron was. And when Enron went under, I mean, they were just blatant. They would raise money the company would, and then the officers and directors would just funnel the money to their accounts offshore. I mean, you got to have brass to do that kind of stuff. And uh, it, was, it was awful because Enron, of course, it was all found out, and the company collapsed, the stock price went to nothing, 
and they had been investing their workers' pension payments in Enron stock. So when Enron died, these people lost their retirement. They lost everything. People who worked 10, 20, 30, 40 years lost everything. Well, the political fallout from that, and then there was another company called WorldCom, caused the Congress to find Jesus, and they passed a strong amendment called, Sar uh, its, its name is Sarbanes, uh, its informal name is Sarbanes-Oxley, Sox. This was a heavy-duty wake-up call. I, interestingly enough, I'm even, I, I'm doing part of the same lecture that I just did last week in my international finance course, because this impacts in a lot of ways all companies around the globe that are U.S.-based. Uh, I'm not going to go into the details of, uh, I'll go into only a few details here right now, but more maybe a little later. But among the things that Sox did was it required that all companies keep a central database of all information about the company, financial and otherwise. So that's why it's in my international course. Okay, you've got operations overseas in foreign countries, maybe run by foreign partners. It all has to be in the database here in the United States, accessible to the SEC's auditors. That was a big thing. In other words, transparency. And then also another thing was that it, they have to have an algorithmic structure that will identify suspicious transactions. And that's going to be hella great because AI is going to find anything that they try to do that's phony. And then there were other parts of SOX too. But the one thing that's important for you to know is that Sarbanes-Oxley required that all the officers and directors sign the forms that are filed with the SEC. So they are, the company is not just liable for misstatements. Those people at the top, both civilly and criminally, are at risk if they lie. So in other words, the the big fancy people who are at the top of the tower in Chicago, they can be fined and they can also go to prison under socks. That cuts down because as much as you might think that those CEOs and those directors are you know, real daring types, no, nah, they don't want to go to prison. The funniest part of this is that the SEC does not usually crack down on the huge bad guys. I mean, they don't. That's just life. That's just the reality of it. And uh, they'll take on, I've had friends of mine, students of mine, go to prison, get fined. Uh, but you take on someone like a former senator and her husband, who is the chairman of the New York Stock Exchange, caught red-handed with insider trading off, uh, off Senate private information. You talk about Elon Musk. He's violated securities law. He's, the, the company has lied on forms to the SEC. He was Tesla was fined, what was it, $70 million? What did 
Elon Musk do? He got on Twitter and cussed out the SEC. Now, if I did that, I might as well get my bridal gown for my wedding at the federal prison. No, you, but he does it. He of the cloven hoof will get by with it. So, you know, the, the reality is that this is not for those gods on Mount Olympus. But other than that, companies do their best to stay in compliance and to be truthful and not to hide information from the SEC. The reason is that they would be hiding it from everyone because everything that is reported to the SEC must be reported to all people, anyone. That is transparency. And I'll show you how serious this transparency is here in just a few minutes. But do understand that this is a serious game uh, that we're playing here. We expect these companies to be truthful. Now, here's how it goes. There, back a long time ago, a company, the, the, here are the, some of the big forms. Form 10Q, it's a quarterly report. Words and numbers revealing the state of the company. And then every year, there is the annual 10K. These Ks and Qs are how I used to make a lot of money when I was in consulting. Companies would go public or they would reverse merge into a public company, and then they didn't know what to do. And they'd be getting letters from the SEC, you are in violation of the Securities Act of 1933 because you didn't file this form. Or, and they, what do we do? So they'd come to me. and. This paperwork was just ungodly. Triplicates of these thick documents. You'll see one here in a second. So that was, but if you're public, you have to do it. Transparency. And then there's another one that I should mention right here. Now, this is the Form 8K. Now, understand that there are dozens of forms. Forms for all kinds of things. The 8K is interesting because these are periodic forms, every quarter, every year. The 8K is a form that must be filed for any non-recurring event. So in other words, you, sir, you resign in disgrace as the CEO of Megacorp International. Bad man, what you did? I have to report it on Form 8K. You, madam, you are the CFO of Megacorp International. You got abducted by aliens. You were drunk with friends in a cow field and they captured cows and you got caught with them. I have to report it on Form 8K. And then you managed to gather the cows and took control of the uh, intergalactic flight uh, of fighter and its cargo and you turned it around and brought it back to earth and you come back down with all the cows you're a hero I have to report on 8k okay? real problems for real people okay so that that's the backdrop now you should have been taught this 
in Business 100. It's part of the curriculum. I used to teach Business 100 until they got concerned about how much I was corrupting the freshmen. Go figure. SEC.gov. Back in the, when I first started consulting, this was paper and paper. And then the SEC said they piloted an electronic filing system. But it was really geeky. You had to, every form, you had these opening and closing tags for every section. It was called SGML, Standard Generalized Markup Language, General Markup Language. It was the grandfather of HTML, Hypertext Markup, what we do with how we do uh, web pages now. But they, they, I was one of the piloters of the Edgar filing system where it would all be filed electronically instead of on, in triplicate on paper. And it worked out, they shook out all the bugs, and it's now the way it's done. I was kicked out of the system in the 90s because they decided that only big companies with lawyers and accountants could do this, and so, but still, it's how we do it. Let me show you. Company filing search in sec.gov. Oh, stop it. Now, you can put in a trading symbol or a CIK. A CIK is sort of like an identifier of a, of a security. Let's look at Walmart just real quick here. Now, see the 8K? Now, we like these because they tell us something that might affect the stock price. So we, as investment analysts and as investors, we like these 8Ks because they notify us of something that's not what we expected to happen. However, now the 10Ks and Qs, here they are. Now Walmart filed uh, its last K last March. So in other words, it's coming up for one pretty soon here. I like to use the 10Ks because they got annual data in them. Now, if I click on this, oh my God. That is a Form 10-K. That's what we have to, used to have to do in triplicate on paper. <laughs> it was insane, huge document. It's also a very good document for you to know. Because, let me show you something here. There's one part that is our favorite, Item 7, Management's Discussion and Analysis, MD&A. This is when the company looks at itself and it does it honestly. I mean, it's glib. In other words, it doesn't pull any punches. Here's what we did, here's the numbers, here's why, here's where we're good, here's where we suck, and it breaks down numbers and shows all these different analyses. Sometimes it even does ratio analysis. This is original source information. So if you're doing a term paper, you quote this, there is no question that this is God's word on the company. Uh, I guarantee you this is worth you knowing how to get to this document. And then you come down here. Okay? Well, this kind of sucks because, yeah, the financials are in here someplace, but watch this. If I click on that button and click this blue, see this blue button here? Well, look at that. The financials. Income statement, balance sheet, they're all there. But I can do you one better, because the SEC requires 
that they provide all of their financials in Excel format. So that means you have everything all ready for you to break down, analyze. And I mean, it just gets They've got every possible financial, executive compensation, leases around the world, square footages of buildings. We don't need to use all of these, but we're going to use these on Wednesday. So bring your uh, notebooks so you can pop open Excel, and we will rock it. That's all I have for you today. I thank you.